he's long dead, isn't he? Is he? I want to. I want to say he was a victim of 2016, but I feel like it might have been two years ago. Are we confusing someone for Bruce Forsyth? No, 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 no. Oh, no, he's dead as well. He's dead as he's well. Dead. No, they're all dead. Jagger's a checker. He was never part of my childhood. Anyway, um, we'll just assume he is dead. Uh, Chagrin died in 2017. Uh, hey, one year off. And oh, but what was the guy who died? Um, to me, to you. Um, Chuckle brother. One of them died last year, right? Yeah. Okay, that's what I'm thinking of. It's one of them. It's one of them, yeah. yeah. No, um, the other one's just going, to me. To me. That's very depressing, actually. <laughs> that's what makes it funny. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Yugoslavia, it's depressing and therefore funny. Welcome to the Anime Podcast. Uh, this week, uh, we have a special conversation about... Similarities, the parallels between Yugoslavia, the breakup of Yugoslavia about 30 years ago, and the current kind of slow disintegration of the United Kingdom. Uh, this week we have uh, a number of people. We have Will, who's fresh from uh, quitting from his horrible job and is high on some type of monster energy drink. How are you doing, Will? I'm doing very well. Um, yeah, freshly quitting. This week, I should say, I'm not drinking um, my, uh, I was going to say proprietary, not proprietary, um, token or like, what's the what's the word for like, for typical, I suppose, uh, monster energy drink. I've got this um, really hipster um, minor figures coffee nitro cold brew, um, which I'm super into. So uh, I might like pop out halfway through this episode and get a monster just to keep myself on brand, as the kids say. How are you, Alex? I'm doing well. Uh, for those who are listening in, uh, Will would be known as Victor Hugo Slav for the purposes of this episode. I also would be uh, Slather Up Milo Yiannopoulos, which is a terrible kind of uh, rhyme, I suppose, off Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, and we also have uh, Zizek Poop, which is James. How are you doing, James? It's um, very good today. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having me on. I believe he came from Slovenia, so that is either the worst Slovenian accent uh, or one of the best, so that's good. Um, we also have the sadly named Acidonia, because he couldn't have bothered to pick a better name. Uh, and that's Dan. How are you doing, Dan? I'm okay. I'm a very lazy man. That's and, and you. That's perfect. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, but, I mean, that's, um, that's a real deep cut from the Athenians. When um, Alexander, when Alexander the Great father was uh, trying to take over the rest of Greek, they were like, "Hey, they're more like Macedonia over here." Well, there is a weird thing, which is that Philip had a boyfriend, uh, as in the King of Macedonia, uh, had a boyfriend who killed him in the end. It was it was in the it was in the movie made by Oliver Stone. Briefly, you see a scene where he. He basically shoves a guy um, down on the ground, like onto like um, a desk, and it visibly looks like he's sticking his dick up his butt. And then shoves him behind the doors, and a bunch of men follow in, and he goes no. And in real life, in the real story, he actually sold his boyfriend off to one of his friends to rape, and that guy then killed him. And that's how Philip Alexander's father died. So yeah, it is Acidonia is actually in a really odd way accurate. There you go. Uh, but you didn't need to know that, Dan. Um, and everyone's shocked, uh, but that's that was life back then. Okay, so <laughs> we'll start uh, with just a, a basic throw-out question for everybody. Um, so what do people think? Do you think that in the UK, as it currently exists, uh, is constituted, will exist in 10 years? If not, what will it look like? So I'm just going to throw it out. Anyone want to go first? Victor Hugoslav, go for it. Um, I thought, like, actually, I should have changed my name to Victor Hugoslavia, but... Um... I was like too slow on the on the bounce, sorry. So will like the UK be constituted as it currently is in 10 years time? I'd be amazed if it was. There was like a YouGov poll I think released this week that gave the relative popularity of the various leaders of political parties in the UK. Boris Johnson has an approval rating of something like 24% or like it might even be lower, like 19%. Uh, Keir Starmer, everyone's favorite um, Trotsky a leftist apparently. Um, has an approval of something like 47%, which is like not bad, I suppose. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon's is up at 74%. 
like massively, massively popular leader. Like I don't like Nicola Sturgeon, but like she seems to be doing a better job than pretty much everyone else. And uh, that's not because she's doing an amazing job. So yeah, um, given that Nicola Sturgeon's super popular, the UK as it's currently constituted is not super popular in Scotland. I would genuinely be amazed if um, Scotland remained part of the UK. I'd say within five years, never mind 10. Um, I mean, just as we're talking about Keir Starmer as an aside, I think there there was a poll a couple of days ago, which was who would handle the the coronavirus um, situation better. And not only did Boris Johnson get like more votes in this poll outside of Keir Starmer, I don't know polled second. So I don't know did better. People were basically like, I don't know is a safer hands than Keir Starmer in this situation. Um, I think in 10 years, it, the UK will still be the UK, but where it will be going at the time, I think will be up for grabs. There's too many things that can happen in too many ways for me to feel comfortable in asserting any real um, thought but I don't think the S&P really have um, the drive and the the cojones to actually like push through Scottish independence the way that it needs to be done. They need to be, you know, Sinn Fein in the nineteen twenties, and they're very much just a neoliberal, um, like slightly less shit than Labour Party. But there's, you know, they haven't. They're not doing anything like you know we're seeing in the Basque country or um in catalonia or anything like that so i i like if scotland is left it's through happenstance rather than anything that the snp have really pushed through so just to, to be clarify you think the snp should should form a paramilitary force and wage a guerrilla war against both the scottish police force and also the uh the british army just to kind of clarify you think that's what we should do since Sinn fein in the 20s did the same thing uh, well, unfortunately, the, the S&P are the cops in Scotland. Like, they're very pro-cop party. But I'm thinking more about, you know, like not taking seats in Parliament and um, like not engaging in the political process in uh, various ways. No, that's a good clarification. Uh, before we go back to Will, Victor Yugoslav, I want to hear, Dan, simple yes or no or whatever. In 10 years, it's, is it still going to exist as it does now? I think it will, but I... Think that sort of the breakup of the UK kind of feels inevitable, um, and I feel like the events of the last five years have probably accelerated that process by quite a lot. I, 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 I agree that the SNP, I, I think, it kind of in their interest politically to to not have independence as soon as possible, because then that's kind of like one of their big political draws is swept out from under them. But yeah, I, I feel like. Probably we still will have a UK, but it, it'll be looking more and more like it, it's sort of fracturing. Thank you. Um, so can I like firstly give a special shout out to James's use of the word happenstance. I've never actually heard that used in the wild before. Uh, I've seen it written down and I've heard like nerdy academics use it, but I've never heard it just like used. Um, I enjoyed it. Thank you, James. I suppose like the reason I said it probably wouldn't be constituted um, within the next 10 years is at the moment, it has a lot of political momentum behind it. I mean, like, um, Scottish independence has a lot of political momentum behind it. And I think if it doesn't happen within the next three years, it's just not going to happen. Like, Scottish independence has never been as popular as it is at the moment. Um, so the only time they really could push through an Indy Ref 2 is, like, roughly now. Um, so the first thing the SNP have to do is, like, table an, an Indy Ref 2 motion, which will probably get rejected by Westminster, which will probably piss the Scots off more. Um, until eventually Westminster had to capitulate. But then if they don't have like a second referendum, they, they obviously can't go for it. So I don't, yeah, I've, I've just got this kind of horrible feeling that either they won't get the Indy Ref 2 on the, on the kind of cards within the next two or three years, um, and then they just won't get it at all ever, because like, like I said, at the moment, the political momentum is behind it. So I suppose like being optimistic, um, sorry, being pessimistic, always get those two things confused now because I'm a chronic depression. Being pessimistic, it'll either happen within the next 10 years or it won't happen. 
Just a, a brief uh, interjection that the current Ipsos MOS or whatever it's called poll, which you can believe or not believe, it's, it, it gives a clue anyway of people's opinions, uh, which was like this week or last week, uh, put uh, support for independence in Scotland at 58%, uh, which was after the do not knows, which were I think 5%. Were removed of six percent. Pardon me. Were removed. So take that for what you will. It's certainly much, 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 much higher than it was when I was living in Scotland in the early tens, uh, when it was probably around thirty percent, thirty-two percent. So I mean, take that as for what it will. A lot of old people have died, so maybe that that's part of it as well. As <laughs> uh, Zizek, James, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we we should make this uh, a Scottish indie ref podcast that's for another time but I'll edit, I'll, james i'll edit it out if it's boring just yeah i don't i like i don't agree with will in this one though i do think it is going to be a longer process rather than a, a run up and start because i think the taste for it is so palpable that it's i don't think it's in a like i think we'll see it in our lifetime but i'm like in 10 years i just don't think it's going to play out that way and i think it's simply going to be due to Westminster holding the reins in the way that they plan to. Okay, so, but back to the, I suppose, central motif of this particular episode, the comparisons, the parallels, if there are any, with Yugoslavia. Um, so I suppose the second question, and it's a bit of, it require a bit of um, education uh, on, uh, on my part anyway, which is how did the events in Yugoslavia in the late 80s, early 90s mirror the current crisis in the UK? Just for those who don't know, beginning in the late 80s, which was about a decade after Tijo, who was the dictator of uh, Yugoslavia, had died, you start to see a rising nationalism. It begins in Kosovo. For those who remember Kosovo, that's it's maybe not surprising it began there. Majority Albanian Muslim, minority Serbs. Milosevic, who was actually a second-hand man of the Serbian president, saw the opportunity of taking advantage of these the minority who were saying they're being oppressed. Whether they were or not uh, isn't really the point. He took advantage of that and piece by piece took over Serbia, removed autonomy within Serbia of two uh, kind of basically independent parts of Serbia, then basically stretched into Montenegro and began a process of, of expanding Serbia to become basically to dominate all the Yugoslavia and that's really how the Yugoslav wars began uh, Slovenia then Croatia then even Bosnia splintered off so that uh, we know that for those of us who are old enough remembers as kids reading or watching the the news the wars in Bosnia and in Kosovo about 140,000 people died we're not saying or at least I'm not saying I think that's going to happen in the UK clearly it's not it's a very very different situation but the idea of a rising nationalism, somewhat fueled by economics, because the collapse of Yugoslavia was heavily based on an economic recession, at least initially. Do we think there are parallels there with what's going on in England? Now, maybe we'll go to the English guy first. Do we think that Tory dominance in England, and it is, when you, when you just take England, Tory dominance is 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 utter. It's completely do it completely dominates England. Uh, is similar to the and you know and Brexit as well is a very English phenomenon, and it's basically an English nationalist phenomenon. So do you think there's any parallels there, Dan? Yeah, I mean, when I watched the the YouTube video that you linked to prior to this session, um, it was quite quite startling how. Not necessarily the kind of nationalism that was being whipped up in between the kind of groups that it was being whipped up in, but the sense that it was definitely a force that was being taken on board and used to drive a political project. Um, it's definitely something that's being exploited and uh, fermented as a consequence of massive inequality and economic instability. That, that was definitely uh, sort of the parallels were there. To my mind, do you think that um, I'll maybe throw it out there? Do you see any connections between a Boris Johnson, a Nigel Farage, and a Slobodan Milosevic? Is, there, is that too too direct a comparison? Um, in terms of being political opportunists, I, I think yeah, the not necessarily the the kind of politics, but then I, I look watching the reading up about it, I, I didn't feel like Milosevic was particularly committed to any cause other than Milosevic and in that sense that's that's Boris Johnson through and through. No I absolutely think so I, I think Milosevic was only out for his own power 
And really, in the end, that's proven by what he did. I mean, he takes power in, what, like, 89? And by 99, the whole of the Yugoslavia has collapsed. Uh, Serbia has been is literally being bombed by American uh, bombers. I mean, he completely destroyed the country. Uh, and to the end, when until he died in 2006, was defending himself in the criminal court. I mean, he's an absolute narcissist. And so I suppose, yeah, I mean, do, what do people think? Are there parallels there, um, you know, to be found? I was waiting for Will to go first because um, I feel that what I was going to say would just do completely derail the um, the analogy um, because I think it is <clears throat> it's it's broadly I see what people are trying to say in terms of um, how it how it can look similar from the outset, but I think in the minutiae of the detail. It's two very, very different scenarios, especially when you consider the history of the areas of the UK and um, what is, you know, was Yugoslavia. One of the, from a historical standpoint, I think what's really interesting is that both areas are still dealing with the fall of the Western Roman Empire when it comes into how territory was. Um, was cut up and who had control of what um you know because if you think about the uk it's very much a case of you know the once the the romans leave and the the saxon and angle mercenaries are moving into england taking over that territory pushing the britons out uh to to wales and cornwall and you know you've got the picks up in the north etc etc so you have this you know this area that is like it has been formed the fault lines that we're dealing with now, you know, started in the 400s and the same in, um, in the, the sort of, you know, Slovenian areas where once the Romans leave, you've got the Slavs then become like a nation that come in. You've got, you know, the Dacians, you've got the, you know, the Huns come in at some point. They're, you know, fighting with... The, the Goths, uh, or the Visigoths, I think, specifically on that side, and, you know, Byzantium, where the Eastern Roman Empire. The big difference, though, between us and, you know, the sort of Yugoslav area was we were never conquered by an empire like the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire. Like, we, first, like, Scotland and England, well, Scotland and Wales and Ireland, it was part of an empire, but... It wasn't conquered by the way that we joined up was very different and i think you know coming into the the 1900s that gives you a very different fault lines where um you know because you've got part it's part of the austro-hungarian empire so there's this huge like historically there's about 800 years of history that are just completely different and they don't resemble each other at all and so to come in and say like, oh yeah, well, you know, this is it's sort of like the break of Yugoslav. What it's basically saying is like, oh yeah, a country with desperate like identities can have tensions when there are like, you know, when they're pulling in different directions. But I think as a neat, like, oh yeah, it's actually going to go the complete way that Yugoslavia did. I don't think it's a, a metaphor that holds too much scrutiny. Just to, I want to, I feel the necessity to point out that a couple of episodes ago when we did the thing about Spain, you complained when I went back to the, went back to the Napoleonic period and you've just literally gone yeah. back more yeah. 1500 years. I didn't complain. I said, my exact words were, if you really wanted to go back, you'd have to start with the, the Goths moving into Spain. Oh, I thought, you, I thought you were being kind of, uh, 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 whatever. I thought you were being kind of making fun of me. Okay, well, that's fine. Yeah, I agree. Um, and also, by the way, uh, we did get conquered as in Ireland got conquered. So let's just, let's put that and nip that in the bud right away. Whatever Scotland's signing up to something, we got conquered. So that's a different thing. Anyway. Well, we could have fought harder than eh? Yeah, I suppose uh, several million people that died, we didn't, you know, they didn't fight enough, you know. Uh, <laughs> Will. Imagine getting beaten by the fucking English. Imagine being so weak as to get beaten by the... I've met the English. Like, we should all be ashamed of ourselves. Culloden, um, Culloden, Culloden. Well, exactly. Like, I said we should all be ashamed of ourselves. I wasn't just meaning the Irish. Um, I okay. think, like, to defend 
your point, Alex, about there being like a rough analogy there. I suppose like all analogies break down eventually, right? But the way you set it up was something like there's like this economic tension within the country and in virtue of the economic tension, it's given rise to a sort of nationalism of sorts, so like an English nationalism of sorts. And in virtue of this, it's also provoked like, I suppose, other like nationalisms in opposition to this. Is that the analogy that you were drawing yeah, out? I think it's not the only analogy. You can look at a lot of different countries and and kind of find comparisons and parallels, but purely for the sake that it, it's it's a country which while it wasn't a union for as long as 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 Britain was, I'm not going to include Ireland because we were a fucking colony, but just Britain, there was an agreement, 1707, the elites of Scotland signed up for the empire, you know. Wales, less so, but let's just keep it to that. There's a kind of comparison there, um, and the breakup happening so quickly, uh, while it's not going to be happening so quickly in the UK, clearly, there is a slow motion, I think, uh, breaking apart going on in the UK, fed by economic uh, 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 inequality, which is manifesting as nationalism in England, primarily. And one of the articles I sent out to you by a guy called Dave McWilliams, who James likes to say I suck off, uh, metaphorically, of course, not literally, uh, um, you know, posits that, yeah, actually, the, the, um, these types of federations fall apart from forces from the centre, not from the periphery. So Irish independence or, or Northern Irish uh, troubles wasn't going to break up the UK. Scottish independence won't or nationalism won't break up the UK. English nationalism will break it up, much like Serbian nationalism broke up Yugoslavia. So that's the comparison I want to make. Um, I think like English nationalism is far more destructive than Scottish nationalism because it's far more insular. So like if you were going to take the analogy of Yugoslavia um, as like a kind of point of departure, I suppose, for a conversation, We'd want to say something like, I don't know for how long it's been going on right enough, but for quite a while now, um, the English newspapers normally at the behest of the Conservative government have been putting various communities within England against each other. And the way they've been doing this is by trying to make the majority empowered population feel like the victims of various like aggressions. So during like 2010 to 2017 or whenever, um, the narrative was that benefit scroungers and working class people were a threat to civilised life. And there was all these like really horrible kind of working class bashing programmes like Benefit Street that aimed to like demonise people on benefits and like suggest that they were all like feckless, lazy, you know, people. Um, programmes like Shameless, I suppose, to try to do a bit of a job of humanising um, people from that demographic. And I'm not sure, I've never actually watched it, but I'm sure, I don't know how good a job it did. Maybe one of you know more about this than I do. Um, but that was a kind of narrative. And then from this narrative, you got um, UKIP Emergent, who then said, it's not just benefit claimants. Um, the reason they're benefit claimants and the reason they've become like this is because of immigrants. Um, immigrants have taken the jobs these people normally would have done. And as a consequence of this, it's um, brutalized entire swathes of our demographic um, such that we've kind of like reduced our own majesty as a country in such in a kind of weird way in virtue of immigration. Um, that really animated a lot of like people who felt alienated from broad parts of our community um, and like forged this really destructive nationalism. Um, and then of course, out of this, you got the BNP and they obviously pre-existed this, but it really um, forced a, I suppose, like a re-emergence of the BNP and then UKIP um, and Tommy Robinson types and all that jazz. So um, the analogy with Yugoslavia, if Slobodan Milosevic were taking as being a person that was opportunistic and used this like economic collapse as a means of um, provoking some sort of like destructive nationalism, I think the analogy, or at least on that level, I totally agree with James about about the analogy breaking down and like after a superficial level, but at least on that level, I think it is it does stand. Yeah, I mean, I would succeed. That the 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 point is that it's the centre that breaks the union um, is is quite a good one. And I've said this before in the podcast, and I'll probably say it again. But the reason that Irish nationalism and Scottish nationalism isn't as toxic as English nationalism is we define ourselves against who we're not, which is the English. Uh, and so it's usually their worst behaviours and the the worst things about their society. We go out of our way to make sure that we try and 
um, like don't recreate. I mean, that, it's not always true because if you look at you know the way that fascism is using um, nationalism in Ireland at the moment, um, it's not great. Uh, but at least Ireland has a rich history of republicanism and nationalism that is left and is anti-racist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, these things are always up to play for uh, in the minds of the people. And so, in that sense, I think it's it's quite it's quite good. Uh, also, I think I think they're kind of right in terms of saying like Slovenia is sort of like Scotland in terms of how it, it viewed itself and goes forward with the idea of itself uh, and the way that it reacts to that. And if you're if you're sort of interested in Slovenia, there's a really good band that started in the '80s called Liebach. And they're pretty much like my like you know in my top three bands of all time, and they're a really interesting cultural artifact because they're obviously working in the eighties, um, and they're sort of their whole shtick is to show you like the the similarities between you know communism and fascism, uh, and how there's like this paper thin difference between them at times. Uh, and they, they don't step out of character very often, but I do get the feeling that over time that they probably do come from like an anarchist standpoint. But what they were going through was a time in Yugoslavia where the inherent contradictions of communism and the society that were they were trying to exist in was just completely breaking down. And it was difficult to see a way forward. And we're very much going through that time now um in the uk where there's a lots of like trying to square circles um but the big difference is you know like slovenia in the 80s had places you could do gigs in where scotland all of the noughties doesn't have anywhere that you can have any cultural output in and you know like the bbc is basically worse than like the Yugoslavian TV networks and radio networks. I, I definitely would agree with that, yeah. I suppose moving on, um, what we might ask, and maybe this is a bit of a history question, but we should probably turn to Dan on, on this because Dan's awfully quiet. Why did nationalisms, so Scotland was a kingdom until 1707, Ireland is, was a colony, but it was also kingdoms complicated anyway, but certainly Ireland had um, until maybe like the early 1600s uh, a relative level of independence. Wales again was the was a century before. Why does that nationalism disappear? But maybe more so with Scotland, I suppose, and uh, stay dormant for so long. And why is it growing now? Now you could probably we should probably start maybe with the discussion of England here. Um, Dan, uh, why, if you, do you know, you can say, I don't know, why did England subsume itself into the UK? I mean, obviously it was an imperial thing to some degree, but they were able to, to a very large and impressive degree to say, no, you're not English, you're British to such an extent that until really the late 20th century, that would have been, if you ask people in most parts of England, what are you? They probably would have said British, not English. I think when you're the dominant force, it's easy to impose that kind of thing on other people. As for the, the question of why nationalism was dormant, I think, especially if you look post-war, like the sort of economic settlement, it, it kind of, it was working for a large amount of people. And I think like nationalism in the way that English nationalism is, it's, it's quite reactionary and it's a reaction to to forces of, I'd say, the last 40 years, really, that have just driven down living standards and driven up inequality. And you don't have any real options politically unless you're a centre-right liberal or a fucking wanker Tory. Um, and I can, I can understand in those instances where people feel disempowered that they look for other other things to blame really um that that would be to my mind the real the real motivator behind it yeah i mean from a scottish standpoint part of the reason that scottish nationalism um was less at the forefront culturally and politically was because for a good chunk of time scotland did quite well out of being in the union so there wasn't much of a reason to to kick up a fuss 
um, because we were placated by money. Like, you know, you lived in Edinburgh. That was all built on, on slave money. Um, and a lot of Scottish history, <clears throat> even though it's framed now as sort of like, oh, it's the English, but a lot of it is like Scottish and Scottish, like hate crime effectively, where like the, the, the clearances, um, that's, you know, Scottish lairds that are doing that. So it just, there wasn't a need. And it was when the, the economy started to break down the way that it has done since Thatcher has been in power. And there's very much a sense of, you know, culture pulling in different directions for whatever reason. And I've never, like, I don't think, I've never really felt too comfortable about deciding, like, say, why is Scotland, like, more aggro in day-to-day life uh, in the street, but, like, less shitheads on a night out? Like, you know, if you go to, if you go to anywhere in, say, Scotland, like a small town on a Saturday night, yeah, you might see one or two fights, but it just like everyone's leaving the pub and you know they're they're having an all right time. But if you, any small town in England you leave and it's like thrown out time at eleven o'clock, it's like fucking chaos. There's just people like slamming heads into doors and like brawls all over the place. It looks like a Hogarth woodcut all the time, and I just don't know like why our cultures just aren't the same in that sense. And I don't know how old it is or how new that is, but it's, if someone could figure that out, I feel that we would, we'd get a long way in like, how do we untangle our, um, our societies, you know? Dan, do you have an answer for why your people have become barbarians and covered in their own feces? (laughs) I think uh, to some degree. Yeah. I mean, it's been said about the American South where, polite deeds cover na- ugly actions and i think that that's sort of like the english are polite in the day and then you get a bit of fucking alcohol in them and their inner brutality seems to come out i don't know whether it's sort of like a consequence of repressing it all the time or you know it's just it's it, it is like uh, to, to my mind people that are kind of very straightforward and in your face without being drunk without you know that sort of thing they tend to they tend to be a lot more relaxed with themselves whereas if you spend all day stewing over something because you you're not equipped to kind of say something about it there and then in the moment that sort of thing really bubbles up and it'll erupt at some point this doesn't explain the irish though who are just like as repressed and passive aggressive as the english but when night falls, just stay exactly the same as they already are. Well, the Irish, it's a complicated thing. I think Ireland is passive-aggressive because of the Catholic Church. I don't think English people are passive-aggressive because of the Catholic Church. Maybe because some type of lingering, I don't know, class issue. I mean, you know, the Catholic Church maybe as uh, was as oppressive as the class system at one point. Um, why Irish people aren't like that when they get booze in them? Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I, it's it's just a different culture, I suppose. I mean, I think there's something to be said for Dan's old idea of the English are England is has an form of internal colonies. Colonies, pardon me. Uh, there's a sociologist. I think his name was Michael Hechter. I think that was his name. I think he's still alive. Who back in the um, 70s wrote a book called Internal Colonization, which was about um, internal colonies within the UK. And he didn't even really mention the fact that you know the whole Norman issue, which Dan brings up now and again, is a really alive issue. Why is it most of the aristocracy that held their lands since the fucking Doomsday Book? in the fucking 12th century. It is an important point. The aristocracy landowners are all, you can pretty much all trace them back to that period. And the way they behave to the English poor is brutal, is really, really brutal. And whereas the Scottish ruling elite, there was a degree there of empathy, not a huge amount. Obviously, James brought up the clearances, but there was more empathy. The aristocracy over here were killed off by the English, and the ones who took over were kind of a bureaucratic middle class. But even they had slightly more empathy. Uh, so I think this, it's the kind of the unsaid Norman colonization. Do you think that might be it, Dan? I think I think that I, I feel that that plays a big part in it. Um, like I said, there doesn't really seem to be much 
coverage of it. But yeah, when you when you trace back the people that own the land, in a lot of instances, the same families have owned the land for a long fucking time. And like where you're saying the cultural difference, I think a lot of a lot of English what would be considered politeness and manners. I think that's a hangover from the Victorian period, a lot of it. The sort of uh, the inclination to, to just put up and shut up. So what we might do now is move on to, I mean, this should be a fairly simple one to say, uh, which is, uh, in fact, it's not even much point asking it, because we don't think that the UK will erupt in civil war. I don't think that's going to be likely. I mean, the US, I think, will, but that's a different, different question for a different day. Though, apparently, Will wants to have a say on that. Will? Yeah, I don't think the English um, have got it in them to have a civil war. So I, I remember talking to this economist around about, I think maybe 2010, maybe 2009, and they were talking about the global financial crash. And they were saying, they were from Argentina, and they were saying um, in Argentina, when there's an economic collapse, they'll drive like trucks through the front door of a bank and like ram raid the safe. In England, when there was like a financial collapse, they all queued up outside Northern Rock. Like that was like their response to like a global financial crash. Every other country in the world would have like, there would have been riots, like there would have been people kicking the shit out of bank clerks. There would have been people like looting and all that kind of crap. In England, they form a fucking queue. Um, I don't know like if that's just because the English are super horny for queues, um, which they are. Um, I don't really know what causes that. But yeah, I'd be amazed if there was an actual like armed conflict in England, like, for it, like for literally anything, I'd be amazed if that was the case. Partially because they're all quite depressed, and um, so the English like don't really have the self confidence to like mobilize in a way <clears throat> that would be that would be helpful in any in, in any kind of like conflict. Um, but also like they, they're so deferential to the authorities. I think it would be amazing to see an armed uprising here. I mean, to be fair, by my count, I think that England has a, at least three civil wars. And the last one, they brought everyone into it as well. Like the fact that it's called the English Civil War when it really should be like the war of like the three nations, four nations. Um, it, it should be said it's, it should be the war in which six hundred thousand Irish people died and some a couple of English people too. Just point a couple of Irish people, a couple of English people, six hundred thousand Irish and a couple of English people died. Two Irish people died in the, the whole of the uh, the English Civil War, and one of them was the king. Um, but yeah, I mean, on the other flip, I kind of really desperately wish for uh, a sort of UK civil war. I feel it would just maybe get out a lot of aggression. And I just like, um, you know, since we're in Dublin, we're prime raiding territory into um, Liverpool and Cumbria. Like, you know, we've got game when it comes to Ireland and and uh, raiding the, the, the west coast of um england so you've been playing crusader kings 3 far too much it's <laughs> not gonna happen stop playing so much crusader kings um but yeah no i think what i would say on a serious note is i i don't think it's likely but i don't think it's impossible that you would see a a resurgence of not, maybe not the ira but something like the ira having a bombing campaign and instead of scotland staying neutral um kind of the tensions might rise to the point where like we might start seeing the scottish versions of something like that um because it, the tensions are so high in, in some aspects that it's not it's not unthinkable yeah i think um in reference to what James said earlier, where you're talking about the history of the area around Yugoslavia, the the, the nationalism of the Serbs and all that, you know, the, it was kind of a resurgence of what happened after the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or at least what kind of led to the First World War as well. And that those, those areas are full of ethnic tension. And whilst you do have different ethnic areas in britain to some degree it's not it's not the same and i think that was a main driver of uh, a sort of a civil war but yeah i, I could i could see potentially sort of a, a, a terror campaign or something like that um but i couldn't i couldn't see where sort of england it's having a civil war with itself um given that the sort of split seems to be more demographic in terms of age than sort of one part of the country wants to kick the shit out of another part. It's it's too much of a 
too much of a sort of a mishmash to to really see where the lines would be drawn for that kind of partisan war. True. Uh, Victor Hugoslav, what do you think? I was just thinking about um, tension building. And this week, I don't know if it's made the news in Ireland, but um, Andy Burnham went on the rampage against Boris Johnson. So, like, Boris Johnson's currently imposing lockdown in various cities in the north. My own uh, current home, Liverpool, is under tier three lockdown, which I'm told is like very, very high. In fact, the highest one that they're going to roll out at the moment. I think they were talking about putting Manchester on lockdown as well. Manchester's like half an hour, 45 minutes up the road from me. And Andy Burnham's really, really resisting this because like it's going to economically devastate the area of Manchester. Loads of businesses in Liverpool, I think they're going to go bust like within the next week or two. It's really, really grim. So Andy Burnham's resisting this really strongly um, against Boris Johnson. And like people in the North are really fucking pissed off with um, London protecting itself. London is in tier one, which is like the lowest level of lockdown. Whereas like Liverpool's in tier three, Manchester's in tier two. I think Leicester or Lancaster, Lancashire or something is in like tier three as well. So there's a lot of like anti-Southern sentiment going about. And this week when I was talking to a couple of the kids, um, about the lockdown that's in their area, we were talking about like this kind of resistance to like the South that they seem to have up here. And this kid, they were like 13 years old, like a year eight kid said to me, we don't like it when Southerners tell us what to do. That kid was 13 years old and already at the age of 13, they've kind of cultivated this anti-Southern, anti-Westminster kind of um, hostility. And I, f- I found that super interesting. So like maybe I'm being dismissive of the English um, far too prematurely. I think it's also true to say that it's impossible to know uh, when these things are going to develop into violence anyway. You can try and guess, but it's usually uh, in in after the fact that you kind of go, oh, all the signs were there. But there was no reason really to point at Yugoslavia in 87, 88 and say this is going to end up being a bloodbath and ethnic cleansing is going to happen. There was, there was a lot of reasons why it shouldn't have. Anyway, we might go on to our maybe our last question or last point, which is, However, the UK disintegrates. It will at some point. Uh, I think we can all agree at some point it's going to do that. Um, it's going to do it in a different way, probably through a mixture of referendum and government action and through continuing kind of English nationalism and the unpleasantness of that. Um, when it does happen, assuming that it does, um, what will be the legacy in the succeeding parts? How do we think Scotland's going to develop? Uh, it's already been developing and moving off, much like Ireland did before we gained independence. Wales, maybe, we'll see what happens at Wales. I can maybe talk about Northern Ireland. But what do we think the countries are going to look like afterwards? And England, too, because uh, England will you know, be a, obviously a big part of this. What will the countries individually look like? Based on what we can see now, what do we think they're going to look like afterwards? Uh, James? I don't know how likely it is, but I'm really interested in some sort of Celtic unity, uh, broad federation that I know like some people have floated and it obviously wouldn't include somewhere like Brittany, which, you know, like there is some talk about um, independence, but it's not really on the table. Somewhere like France, even for all of its, you know, default lines it has in its, you know, different ethnicities and um cultural backgrounds it is more homogenous and that is partly because it spent time in the 1700s and 1800s um forming a larger sense of itself which the uk didn't do because we were too busy um invading somewhere else uh which you know france had colonies but it never did it to the the extent that we did um so yeah somewhere like scotland i do see like it it would move more to a European sensibility or more likely more like a Nordic model um, because it shares a lot of sort of characteristics and topography and things like that. Um, But for sure, like I think England's in a nosedive and I just, I do not see it coming out. I basically would say in about 50 years, like, England will just be like this complete wasteland. Um, it will like it will be like um, fallout, but everywhere else in the British Isles will just be normal. And like England will have just done it to like they'll have nuked themselves somehow, and they'll mostly be underwater as well. Um, 
but they will continue to just be like head wreckers. And I can't even think of any other country that would be as like as small as they would get, but yet continue to just cause problems for everyone that they come in contact with on the national stage. Well, um, on that rather uh, door note, um, I probably should talk about the North. Um, look, the North is complicated. It's it's very, very complicated. Whatever will be the results of a referendum or government discussions or whatever exactly happens to change the constitutional question in the North, it'll be complicated. It'll be as complicated as the Good Friday Agreement. It'll be, it'll be look very watered down and, you know, what will probably happen is some type of situation whereby um, there's a form of binational kind of control in the north. So much like today, the Irish Republic has a lot of say in, in Northern Ireland, not as much as the UK government, but it's a fair amount. The same thing will probably happen the other way around. England or maybe even Scotland, if Scotland became independent, will have some type of say. There'll be a, a, probably have to be a lot of devolution in the areas that are unionist controlled so they keep their flags up so they can do their marching and they can just be annoying, um, <laughs> as they often are. Um, but otherwise, I think it'd be really good because I think it'll heal a lot of these kind of lingering wounds that exist in the Irish psyche. I think it'd even be good in the long run for unionists because I think they need to have something else to think about. The only thing they've been thinking about since the fucking 1640s is this mass of Irish Catholics, majority of which aren't even particularly any Catholic anymore. So I think there's, there's a lot of good things to be got done for gained from it. I don't think it'll be as clear cut as people imagine. I think it'll be very bureaucratic and very wishy-washy to begin with, but maybe that's necessary for something like that to happen. And thankfully, I don't see a return to the troubles. I just think all sides of, are just too wounded by that experience. But that's just my view. Um, Dan, what do you think England will be? James seems to think it'll be a wasteland like Fallout. What do you think? I kind of, kind of two minds about it. Uh, I, I, I can definitely see the argument for it just being utter carnage. Um, but trying to be a bit more optimistic about it, when you, when you look at the demographic split between younger people and older people in this country, it's definitely everything that's happening that is just a head fuck in this country at the moment is being driven by people over the ages of forty five, and it, it's. It's almost as if there's like a, a line you can draw where people who kind of have some kind of connection to Empire, whether they remember remember it directly or whether they remember sort of, or they're close enough to it through various family members that it still holds something on them. Um, and people who kind of, like for me, it means nothing to me other than history. It doesn't, it doesn't inspire anything in me. I don't, I don't think of anything about it other than the consequences and sort of how it's led to where we are now. Um, and I, I feel like that's sort of quite common amongst people my age and younger, for sure. And most younger people that I end up speaking to are just so different to anyone over the age of sort of 45, 50 that I, I don't see... I don't see how it's sustainable sort of demographically for this country to keep going the way it's going other other than it collapsing into a total authoritarian state which you know you could argue with the the parliamentary system the way it is kind of is already but other than that I, I can't see how they can keep hold of sort of this this nationalism and this sort of kind of it almost like a, a jingoism for empire but based on sort of an empire that never really fucking existed. Will, do you want to have the last word, uh, your opinion on what it'll all look like after it falls apart? Sure. I mean, like, I totally agree with James that it's going to be a fucking shit show and, like, a total wasteland. So as a as a teacher, um, I can I think I've mentioned before in the podcast, something like somewhere between 75 and 85% of the kids um, in the school I work in can't read because of austerity. Um, and that won't just be typical of like that school. That'll be indicative of like a fair whack of schools in the north, maybe. Um, I think the south didn't have their funding cut quite as aggressively, and in virtue of this, um, they can at least read. But they're still they're still knackered, right? Like they're still absolutely gubbed. Um, so if like English nationalism is going to try and push immigrants out, and English people don't want to go and pick fruit and work in hotels and other kind of jobs that no one wants to do. 
And if the economy is currently on the uh, on the old recession, on the downward swing, I mean, in that several hundred thousands of people are about to lose their jobs. Um, I can things I can see things going full Mad Max. Yeah, I think if the union were to break up, I think the country that would come off worst out of it would be Wales. Um, I don't really see the Welsh doing that well economically speaking. They're super um, economically depressed. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really see much happening in Wales. They were the biggest beneficiaries of EU funding as well at one point. So obviously they'll not be entitled to that anymore. And I don't imagine the English are going to send loads of money to Wales because like they don't give a shit about the Welsh. So I think Wales will probably come off the worst. I think uh, England will be second worst. I think Scotland will probably do all right. Like on the last analysis I saw, it said something like Scottish people will be better or worse off by £200 either way over a given year. And like most, I think most people would not buy or sell their country for 200 quid. Um, so yeah, Scotland probably be okay. England, Wales, less so. James, short last word, go for it. Yeah, it should be said though that Wales is starting to make some good steps in the right direction when it comes to Welsh independence. Um, and so we should probably do an episode at some point soon and get some people to come on and talk about it because it's still early days, but the seeds there are looking good because they sort of follow the same seeds that it, it took Scotland to take to get to the point that we are now. So I'm hoping that Wales will be able to, to um, disassociate itself from uh, Great, Bit- Great Britain sooner or later. Okay, guys, uh, hopefully you enjoyed our take on how the UK in actuality isn't particularly like Yugoslavia. Uh, there's, there's a few connections, but not, really nothing that's worthwhile doing an entire podcast on. There we go. We've learned something. Um, Yugoslavia, more like Mioslavia. So funny. Um, what we'll do is we're going to leave you guys. Uh, we'll be back next week uh, with an episode about how middle-class wankers uh, love to pretend they're working class. Great stuff. Um, uh, but that, this is going to be goodbye for me. Uh, Alex, otherwise known as Slather Up Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, James? otherwise known as Zizek Poop. It's goodbye from him as well. <laughs> uh, it's goodbye to Hugo Slavia, Victor Hugo Slavia. Thank you. Um, yep, um, listeners will be encouraged to learn that I did actually get my Monster Energy drink, although I'm drinking white this week. I prefer green, but I'm drinking white this week. Um, so, yeah, back on brand. Yay. Uh, and goodbye to Acidonia, uh, who should also be shamed for a shizzy name. But anyway, but we've already we've already went. I'm not shitting it. Never mind. Bye, Dan. Ta-ra. <laughs> chip, chip. Uh, all right, guys. See you next week. Bye.